You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 62. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, Genesis of the Daleks. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So we're going uh, way back to 1975 for Genesis of the Daleks. This is uh, featuring the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. Uh, it aired that spring of 1975. It was uh, six episodes. There are six uh, half-hour uh, episodes here. Um, it's the first season of the fourth Doctor's seven seasons. It's li- it's literally mm-hmm. episodes 11 to 16, I think it is. Um it features. And there's a. Yep. Oh, Go ahead. There's a couple of notes uh, just on the kind of its placement. It's the fourth story with Tom Baker. Yep. And so it's very early days for him. And one of the things that he's noted in interviews subsequently is that there was kind of a transition in the writing from the third Doctor John Pertwee's era to his. Um, John Pertwee was very good at sarcasm. And had kind of a, a bunch of sarcastic put-downs he would do. And Tom Baker didn't really feel that that fit his style of humor. He was more zany. And so for the first few episodes, he's kind of... The writers were still kind of in John Pertwee mode. And in fact, the first of the scripts was really a John Pertwee script. And so by this point, you can start to see the transition into a more Tom Baker-esque mode of humor in this mm-hmm. um where like there's one line after they've been taken prisoner by the by the Khaleds and um the doctor says uh you know could we have some tea and and then there's like no response to that and he says oh no tea and <laughs> it's just kind of a little Tom Baker-esque moment also this is the last you mentioned on this is a six-parter and six-parters and even longer were very common in early Doctor Who history and this is the last six-parter that was not a season finale. Mm. After this, they decided, okay, no more six-parters unless we're doing a big blowout season finale. You know, when you mentioned the the transition from like sort of a part we ask to the Tom Baker style, it sort of flows though, and it's sort of it almost over time. I feel I felt like this is what they decided to do with the with the uh, the regenerations is sort of have. A brief period, and although in later Doctors it was a very brief period, where they kind of overlap in their style a little bit. I felt like that was from nine to ten and ten to eleven, uh, not so much eleven to twelve, but mm-hmm. nine, you know that they that first episode, that regeneration episode, there was you know when they're still getting a sense of themselves. I think I felt like sometimes there was that the, the, they tried to maintain this sort of bridge uh, in yeah. personalities. Uh- Partly, it's also because the writers don't know the personality of the new actor yet. Mm-hmm. They haven't figured him out and don't know how to exploit his native inclinations yet. Yeah, that's uh, so. That's interesting. So that I mean, this is in many ways the first you know real strongly Tom Baker story, um, and mm-hmm. it's often regarded as the. In fact, it's been voted by fans in some uh, some surveys as the best Doctor Who story. 
yeah. TV story. Definitely, definitely from classic who. And it really I would I'd put it up against anything that new who has has to offer. You know, it's funny that this is a, a six parter and traditionally six parters have kind of been stretched. Drugged. Yeah. But this one, there's not a lot of stretch in this episode. I mean, yeah, they're going here, there and everywhere, but it's constant going. There's action. They're moving. You know, it's not yeah. like let's have a let's have a lot of um hallways that we're going to be running down. Let's go outside and right. run. You know, there's not a lot of that in this episode. And it's also surprising because this is written by Terry Nation, the creator of the Daleks. And mm -hmm. Terry Nation, even though he created the Daleks, he wasn't that great of a writer. And a lot of his stories were very similar to each other. In fact, when he first pitched a new Dalek story, uh, they, they said, Terry, you sold us this exact story like a, a year ago. And they walked him <laughs> through the story beats and showed him how it was the same story. And right. and then he went off and came up with this, and it was just so much better. In fact, it's so much better than what Terry Nation typically does that there was a rumor that the script editor, Robert Holmes, went through it and extensively rewrote it. Robert Holmes having a reputation as being the best Doctor Who writer of this period. And mm -hmm. apparently that's not true. It, it This really is Terry Nation, and he's just firing on all cylinders this time. Hmm. You know, one thing I'd like to talk about from the beginning. Well, let's first, like, let me just give you the, the quick recap for those who haven't watched it yet. Um, uh, so we have the fourth doctor and he's he's traveling and he's using uh, by via transmat, I think. Right. Or or is he's pulled off of the, the TARDIS via with yeah. it, by a transmat. Well, uh, he, at the end of the previous episode, he and his companions, Sarah and Harry, who we should talk about. Right. We're all in the process of transmatting. And they've been yanked out of the transmat beam by the Time Lords. Okay. To to Scarrow, the planet Scarrow, thousands of years in the past, um, and sent on a mission by the Time Lords to uh, to um, destroy the Daleks, to stop the, the 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 future of the Daleks from from arising, uh, which is uh, very in a very interesting meddling with the time stream sort of mm -hmm. idea. Um, and, yeah, uh, either either stop or alter the development of the Daleks so they're not so aggressive. Right, and so what we have here is is uh, they're they're back in the, the the right at the key moment in the war between the the well what were previously called the Dolls. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. The first Doctor's encounter with the the, the Daleks. Um, the 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 thals and the dolls and I th I think maybe they changed that because it was too <laughs> too confusing yeah. so the Khaleds and the thals um, this goes well all the way back to the end of that war of destruction that that destroyed this you know the population of the planet except for uh, very few Daleks and thals um, and it's the, the, this moment at the end of that war when uh, Davros the creator of the Daleks it, it ends up you know creating them and setting them loose on the universe uh, so and, this is this is the earliest in Dalek history that the doctor has ever gone right mm -hmm. okay so this this is a prequel to the original appearance of the Daleks so that's what I want to first start off with is talking about because we've we recently talked about that first doctor story where he originally meets the Daleks um, and kind of talk about how that meshes with this story so you know, the fourth doctor undoubtedly remembers running into the Daleks uh, as in, in that incarnation uh, and mm -hmm. uh, at a much later point in time and they're in the Thals. And so now he's further back. And so so what do you think? Does this does this 
Does the story adequately mesh with that from your opinion? Did they just kind of wave a hand at the early one and say, well, whatever, whatever problems are, we're just going to skip it. Um, you know, did you find anything in it that sort of like I have to suspend my disbelief, you know, because, uh, you know, what I know about that episode? Um, I, you know, oh. honestly, my my opinion is because they weren't dealing with what we have today, where we have instant access to every, you know, episode of every season of every show that we ever could want to watch. We're more concerned about continuity. And you see this with Star Trek, too, is, you know, before earlier Star Treks became more available, they weren't quite as concerned about continuity as they are now. Um, Doctor Who really continuity in, in classic Who is kind of a hand wavium, you know? <laughs> yeah. It kind of sort of maybe matches, but yeah, it, I don't think, cause you think about it early the, in the early Dalek episodes, they had to run on static electricity. There's no gonna, mention of that in this episode whatsoever. I was going to mention that they're not confined to a single city the way they, they later are. We see them roaming over the countryside and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Also, there's a little th kind of throwaway moment in the original Dalek story where the Thals, I'll just call them that to keep it straight, yep. are, are showing pictures. They have some historical records of what they and the college used to look like. Exactly. And the, and the implication is that the, the college used to be much more spiritual, philosophical beings and, and maybe looked quite different than, than they do now. Um, and, and whereas the, the Thals were much more warlike and had, they had kind of battle armor and stuff looked kind of like a medieval knight, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and none of that's in this. So either exactly. uh, you could retcon that by saying, well, okay, they're t either their historical records are inaccurate or they're talking about a much earlier time than right. this. Beginning because, of the Thousand Year War or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. That's, yes, um, I can imagine that. What, what interests me also, they, they do mention the second Dalek story, which is the Dalek Invasion of Earth, mm -hmm. um, which is the one where the doctor uh, dropped off Susan and said his goodbye to her. It's the famous yep. I shall come back speech that they periodically yep. reuse in Doctor Who. Um, and in that story, uh, Tom Baker mentions it when he's being interrogated by Davros. He mentions a number mm -hmm. of future encounters with Daleks, including that one. But as you say, Father, um, the uh, they're kind of loosey-goosey with continuity. So at one point when they refer to that story, it they mention it happening in a different year. And yeah, the year 2000. Yeah, it was the year well, 2000. I, specifically, they say 2000 in the uh, in the interrogation with Davros. I think they allude to it another time and also kind of get it off. Um, but uh, but it's clearly the same story they're referring to. Yeah. What interests me a little bit more rather than than kind of retroactive continuity is pr prospective continuity, because this gets this story gets fit into a couple of other things that we don't know about yet that the writers hadn't invented. One of them is the Celestial Intervention Agency, the CIA, mm -hmm. the Time Lord CIA. Uh, occasionally, the doctor had been sent on missions by the Time Lords, but it really wasn't clear who among the Time Lords was doing this. And later they uh, developed the concept of the Time Lord CIA. And so that's who the doctor is working for here even though it doesn't yet have a name. The other more kind of more momentous thing is 
in after this episode, conflicts between the Time Lords and the Daleks grew more intense. Like there's a, a Peter Davidson fifth Davidson fifth Doctor episode where the Daleks try to create clones of Peter Davison and his companions to assassinate the Time Lord High Council. Mm -hmm. And when Russell T. Davies regenerated the series, so to speak, um, in 2005, he looked back on those and said, all of that's the beginning of the Time War. And really, this episode, Genesis of the Daleks, where the Time Lords try to alter Dalek history, is the first shot in the Time War. So actually, the Time Lords <laughs> fired first... And it was Tom Baker who was their weapon at that time. What I find interesting, I mean, sort of jumping to the end of this episode, is this a, it's a classic, in, 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 not in the specific sense, in the broader sense, a classic Doctor Who um, finale, which is that moral quandary that the Doctor is faced with. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If we kill the, the Daleks now, if we stop them now, um, we, you know, we, we exterminate them. But how does that change the future? You know, we'll save right. millions of lives and possibly billions, uh, depending on the timelines that you look at. Uh, or, but we, but we've destroyed this the, the, these people. But what do we also lose? You know, by mm -hmm. having to fight the Daleks, it gives it gives the peoples of the universe uh, alliances that they work together. And and so he goes into this this very this speech about. You know, I ha I you know, and when he decides, I have to let them live, because right. changing the timeline is is too much. And it's a very interesting. This is not the f the last time, and probably not the first time that the Doctor encounters this quandary about changing the timeline. Right. Um. <clears throat> so I just yeah, I, it's and that's and that's one of the, probably one of the most famous speeches in classic Who that yeah that interaction between him and. Sarah Jane, you know, have I the right? Have I the right to do this? And she's like, how can you question that? Right. Right, exactly. And this actually, this serial has two classic speeches, because in addition to the Sarah Jane doctor interaction um, there in the previous episode, that's in part six. In part five, there's the famous uh, interaction between uh, Tom Baker and Davros where he asks Davros, if you created a virus in your lab that was fatal on contact, you know, would you release it into the universe? And Davros starts contemplating this, and he, he imagines a little imaginary pill between his two fingers, and as he's thinking about it, and he starts getting really intrigued by the idea of having the power of life and death over the universe. And finally, he just smashes his two fingers together yeah. and says, yes, I would release it. Such power would set me above the gods. And through the Daleks, I shall wield that power. And that's just another this. So that's another classic speech that gets callbacks all the time in Doctor Who fandom and even mm -hmm. on the show. So um, you mentioned we, we've mentioned it several times the companions Sarah Jane Smith and Harry Sullivan. Uh, yeah. So Sarah Jane, I remember she was there uh, for the transition from the third mm -hmm. Doctor to the fourth Doctor. When did Harry Sullivan come in? He was there as well. Was, was he, not? he there? He came in immediately after um, in in Robot, the, if I recall correctly, the first Tom Baker story. Okay. For some um, reason, I thought he was he was there as part of John Pertwee. 
I don't think so. Um, my memory is that he came in, um, and one of us can look it up while we're talking, but yep. uh, is that he came in in robot. And the reason he came in was because, regardless of exactly when, was because they weren't sure who they were going to cast as the new doctor. And they thought it might have been an older man. In fact, there were a number of older men who were considered for the part. Um, and they were afraid he wouldn't be as spry as John Pertwee and not as able to undertake as much action. And so they wanted to create a younger man who could take on the action role if need be. So they created the character of Harry Sullivan, who's a, um, a, a, a doctor for the mil for the British military. And he, uh, uh, didn't stay very long on the show mm -hmm. as a companion because it turned out Tom Baker was a younger man and was perfectly spry and could do all of, you know, the action mm -hmm. that was needed. And so Harry was, uh, came to be a little bit of a superfluous character. And so even though he was a very nice guy, he got written out fairly quickly. Yeah. Okay. I looked it up and he was not in planet of the spiders, but was in robot, but he was yeah. mentioned in the planet of the spiders. Uh, the brigadier summoned Dr. Sullivan uh, uh -huh. when they found out that the doctor uh, had been uh, exposed to radiation and then kind uh, of that would it, canceled it. Yeah. That, that would explain why he then shows up um, at the beginning of Robot. Yeah. Right. Right. Also, I forgot how much I actually liked Harry Sullivan. Yeah. He's such he's, a nice guy. Well, he's he's got some great one liners in this, too. I mean, he's he got some, just a great wit there. He's just kind of he's a little more sarcastic. And that's I think yeah. maybe that's why I liked him. Also, they, they did an interesting uh, thing to create some t a little bit of dramatic potential within the TARDIS crew. So, you know, Sarah Jane has been introduced. She's this enterprising young female journalist in the 1970s or 80s, and um, she's a women's liver. And and this is something that had been happening for a while with Doctor Who companions. You know, uh, Joe Grant uh, was also a women's liver, and... Um, the previous companion uh, kind of was too, but not in the way that Joe and Sarah were. Um, but uh, they make a point early on with Harry that he's a bit more traditionalist. And so that naturally creates a little bit of tension between him and Sarah um, mm. with him, you know, wanting to be a little more protective of Sarah and, you know, like men need to do the more dangerous stuff here, Sarah, you know, hang back a little bit. And she wants to just charge ahead. And so that's kind of neat, too. So and they both play um, big roles in this. I mean, they have the independently mm -hmm. of the doctor, they, they they each have something to do. I mean, even Sarah Jane uh, has that uh, time when she's been captured by the Thals and is uh, forced to loading a rocket slave labor, loading yeah. that rocket um, and. It's you, you. You can see the difference in the time frames of when things are produced versus the seventies versus now. I mean, even as a woman's liber of the time, uh, which is such an archaic term for us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the the fact is that she, you know, while she has some agency, is was one of the terms they talk about. She does end up a little bit damsel in distress as well. Uh, not well. But, every every companion does, and the doctor himself, for that matter. Right, and that's the thing is, is the doctor himself, so, you know, is is at times more helpless than we than we sometimes see in the current version of uh, Doctor Who in the in the modern Doctor Who. 
Um, you know, the, the doctor gets captured. He's sort of at a loss at times. It's a very different feel from like, even when the, say, whether it's Peter Capaldi or Matt Smith, mm-hmm. when they're, when they've, when they're, you know, um, set back by the, by the bad guy of the episode or whatnot, there's still this idea that they're, 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 they're only moments away from coming up with a solution. This right. is something you, you know, talk Yeah. The the whole bluster, the whole, you know, Clara saying, well, you always figure things out at the end. You right. Know, yeah. You don't see that in this one. This is something you you talk, you comment on often, Jimmy, the, this, the fact that the modern doctors, which is, I think, more about how modern television tells stories than uh, than anything else. But that the modern doctors all often seem like they're, uh, you know, they're they're always Str- in control. Yeah. Strutting om- omnicompetent egomaniacs. <laughs> right right so um let's some of the some of the things about the um the show the 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 beats that we want to talk about very specifically um i I just wanted to mention right off the bat it's just because we we recently the last episode we talked about uh empty child uh the the seeing the soldiers with the colorful gas mask at the very beginning i was i just half expected one of them to say are you my mummy (laughs) Uh, so um, let's let's talk about that opening sequence because it's really nice um the you know when the doctor wakes up he's just been yanked out of the transmat he doesn't know where he is he's in a rock quarry which is not at all unusual for early doctor no no um but it's misty and there's a world war one like battle going on and, you know, a Time Lord in a weird costume with a weird collar, but a different collar than the kind we're used to, shows up and gives him this mission to alter the history of the Daleks. And then Her- and he gives him, because he doesn't have the TARDIS there, he gives him a device that's kind of like a bracelet uh, that they call a time ring. And the time ring is going to be the thing to get them off of Sparrow once he's completed his mission. Yeah. And then the Time Lord vanishes and Harry and Sarah show up and they have to make their way. The Time Lord's left them in this really inconvenient place because they're in the middle of a minefield. Yep. In this, And the Doctor actually steps on a mine and there's a very tense moment where Harry has to like wedge stones under the mine to keep it from tipping so the doctor can take his foot off of it. Yep. And I don't know that that really makes sense, but it's very dramatic. Yeah. Um, I love the line though, where they say, so which way are we going? Forward. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's another, there's another uh, funny moment where, uh, you know, uh, the doctor says, follow me and follow in my footsteps. And Sarah says, oh, like good King Wenceslas, which is yeah. from yeah. the famous uh, Christmas time. Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of them landing in this minefield, this is very reminiscent or should we say the 12th doctor story is very reminiscent. Magician's Apprentice, the witch is familiar. Right. The doctor also ends up in the middle of a Scarrow battlefield, although where, uh, where you have years- hand binds. Right, right, and mines, which is uh, very scary, um, where he encounters Davros as a boy and yep. and gets that this moment. Like, so the when the Doctor and Davros are, are sort of at, at, you know, battle of wits at the end, there's this, they bring up this idea of, or no, actually it wasn't uh, the Doctor and Davros, I think it was the Doctor and uh, Sarah and Harry. If someone who knew the future pointed out a child to you and said that that child would grow up to be totally evil, to be a ruthless mm-hmm. dictator, could you kill that child? And that's what plays out. And so this is what this scene reminded me of, is the Doctor being on this very same battlefield, apparently, 
mm-hmm. with that very same dilemma he ends up uh, encountering. Mm-hmm. And so the this you can see how this theme plays out uh, over and over. Um, uh, by the way, I, I I wrote in my notes Chekhov's time ring. <laughs> Don't lose yeah. it. So, of course, he's, the, the, the time was says, don't lose it. So, of course, I knew right away he, he would lose it. Yeah. <laughs> that would be twice. Yes. A key part of the of the of the, the, the story would be that getting this time ring back. Um, so the one, go ahead. One of the things that's interesting here now um, is that because of the chaotic history of this war on Scaro, they, you know, they're kind of barely holding society together. And so they have this mix of futuristic and archaic technology, mm-hmm. which is very convenient for them at the BBC because that allows them to use whatever wartime props they have available, um, yeah. whether they look futuristic or not. Um, also, and this is something that has been widely commented on, this story, because it goes, I mean, the Daleks have always been reminiscent of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. But this story really explores that. And so it lets them go into, um, you know, a lot of Nazi iconography and imagery yep. and mannerisms among the Khaleds, um, who are basically pure ciphers for the Nazis. And we've commented before about how previously on Doctor Who, they would kind of steer away from World War II as if it was kind of too soon like mm-hmm. in in the War Games episode, the second Doctor Regeneration story, they encounter all of these different battle periods from Earth's history, and World War II is conspicuously missing. Right. Um, and, you know, because presumably lots of the dads in the audience would have fought mm-hmm. in it. And uh, shell shock, or as we now call it, post-traumatic stress disorder, is a real thing. Right. Right. But this is 1975, and so it's been 30 years since the close of the war. And apparently that's long enough that they felt comfortable um, touching on some of these issues. So you have mm-hmm. figures like Niter, who is just – I mean, he's, a, he's, an, he's clearly an SS guy without the armband. But yeah. if you watch closely in the first couple of episodes, he actually is wearing an iron cross. Um, mm. And then the iron cross vanishes after that because the producers thought it was a little too on the nose. Um, well, you even but, look at the you even look at like the embroidery on his collar looks very reminiscent of SS type. Yeah, it's it's actually an eye with a lightning bolt through it, but it really does look a lot like, you know, a little Nazi emblem. Um, one thing that's kind of, and this has actually been there since the beginning, but seeing it in color is, is neat as a kind of a subversion of the Nazi thing. You have their, their opponents, the Thals, as they're Mm -hmm. called here, um, who are actually a bunch of blondes. And in the original, (laughs) in the original Doctor Who story, you know, it was in black and white, but you could still clearly see they were wearing like platinum blonde wigs and stuff. And that was just to make them seem good in comparison to the Daleks. But here it takes on a bit of a different resonance. They're not all platinum blondes, but they do have blonde hair. And um, so here it's kind of ironically, the Aryans are not the Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. And so (laughs) we've got Nazi imagery, but it's also kind of subverted. There is a third uh, group of people uh, in the midst of this war. You have the Thals and the Khaleds, but then there are the Mutos. And there, mm-hmm. there's apparently the mutated people that are rejected by both sides, uh, mutated by the 
radiation and remnants of various weapons. Um, and there is sort of an underclass, uh, a slave class, if you will. Um, and yet when Sarah encounters uh, one of them, um, he, he it turns out, as you might expect, uh, you often see as a sort of trope in the in the stories. Um, he's the one who sort of is the most sensitive of them all. You know, why must we destroy beauty? He says, as one of them is about to kill Sarah Jane, she's unconscious and he stops him, mm-hmm. you know, and he says, why must we destroy beauty? And there's this 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 philosophical moment in the midst of this uh, show in, in the midst of war. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Exactly. Right. It's a it's a it's a it's it's very uh, how do I say um, it's ingrained in our nature to kind of bring up this story of the contrast between uh, the you know, the, the the beauty that not only just external beauty and, and uh, bestial, but mm-hmm. but how something that that looks beast bestial like a beast uh, has beauty within it. Um, and so there's that that interesting yeah. story. Fortunately, it ends better for this guy than it did for either King Kong or Quasimodo. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, so we, we mentioned he wasn't the one that fell. He wasn't the one that fell off the tall scaff, scaffolding. <laughs> right. Well, he, he didn't have to fall yeah. far. But <laughs> so the funny, the very speaking of this tall scaffolding, I, was, I, I recall once Sarah gets to the top, they have to climb to the tip of the of the uh, rocket to open up the the doors to get out, um, and this is. To me, it was a comical moment where yeah. Sarah's on the scaffolding, he's on the on the rocket, uh, and he's like, "Jump! I can't make it." And he looked down; and it's like a foot. You know, you could step across. Like, mind the gap. Does. She does. She <laughs> yeah. does step across. I mean, yeah. There, there's the the underground has longer, wider gaps than this did. You know, and you know the funny part is, you know, he makes that jump. He actually jumps over to it, and you right. see her step, and literally, it was she stepped. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I did think that was funny. And then at the end what? of this cliffhanger, this episode, almost literally, she falls and she's falling, falling from a great height and there's nothing below her. And then they start About the next episode. Feet. Yeah. And then she lands on a shelf or, you know, on a, on a lower level. Like, by the way, one thing I want to comment, I was struck by, I think the uh, production crew spent the entire season's set building budget on this one episode. Oh, yeah. I saw at least five sets, if not more, you know. Yeah. Yeah, although they didn't spend a whole lot on the burning uh, dome. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> that was that was amusing. Um, so, but there, there's a lot of moral complexity in this episode. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded now at this point of the scientists for the Khalids mm-hmm. who are morally opposed to what Davros is doing, and yet they well, won't oppose eh. him at first. Yeah, so so there's some interesting stuff there. Um, you have this scientific elite that's working on various war projects, and that's what you would expect. I mean, every nation has that going on. During World War II, we had the Manhattan Project. Germany had its equivalent. So did Japan, actually. Um, and so having a scientific elite working on stuff is not a surprise. What their criticism of Davros is, is not that he's making Daleks, because the way he's, and and this gets into some bad science, but what he's allegedly doing is um, using some kind of technique they don't really ever go into to force Khaled evolution forward. Mm -hmm. And he says, these creatures, these green blob things, are what we will eventually evolve into. And and scientifically, this is just that's poppycock. I mean, 
evolution is driven by it, it, the butterfly effect in, in mm -hmm. billions of different ways. And so um, there's absolutely no way you can predict what a, the future of a life form is going to be because it's uh, determined by changes in the environment. And no one knows how the environment's going to change in the future. So this is bad science to begin with, that you could predict where you're going to go. But, but he thinks that's what's happening, and these other scientists buy that. And then he's also created a travel case, namely the, what we think of as, the Dal, as a Dalek, to contain the green blobs to enable them. It's kind of a, pr a pr prosthesis for them to interact with mm. their environment. And they don't have a problem with any of this. What they have a problem with is Davros is genetically engineering the Khaled mutants so that they become aggressive and conscienceless. He removes their consciences. <laughs> and, and that's the key thing. I mean, he even makes the point that every species needs aggression to survive, and they're kind of okay with that. Um, but it's the fact that he's removing the consciences of the mutants so that they have unchecked aggression yep. that is the real problem. And when Davros realizes that they're not going along with him, he does some really surprising and complex stuff. He betrays his own people. I mean, mm -hmm. the reason that the Khaled Dome collapses and the Khaleds lose the war is because Davros gives the formula to get through mm -hmm. it to their enemies. And so, I mean, it's that's not something you would expect to see, you know, their chief scientist double dealing in this way. Um, and he's and he makes, you know, this appeal to this is how we're going to get peace and I'm willing to do it. And it's more morally complex than you would expect. Um, also, he and, and this is, I think, a weak point in the writing when he realizes that the that he's like completely lost the support of the scientific elite. He gives them a democratic vote, and he's actually setting them up to identify who's against him so he can have the Daleks kill them. Mm -hmm. But he's gone to the extent of having a big red destructo button prepared that really will destroy the Dalek factories. And we know that because he tries to then use it himself. And it's like, okay, why did he prepare this comically large destructo button? Because you always you know. have to have the big red button that can solve all the problems. <laughs> well, <laughs> so it's weakness in the writing. Um, I think they made him a little too complex there because that's not what a real madman would I, I, do. I see. I think that's part of British uh, engineering requirements is you must have that big red button. The deus no, ex machina button. <laughs> yeah. I love it too. It's la labeled, you know, utter destruction or something like <laughs> yeah, that, you know. Yeah. Well, so, the, at least the war doctor would have appreciated that. Right. Yep. And so you do have this complex story. You have you have dolls, you have thals, you have mutos, you have Daleks, you have the anti-Davros dolls, you have the Time Lords, you have all of these different factions within this storyline, um, all with their own agendas, all, you know, back and forth. It, it's this is not just a, a, a kiddie show. You know, this is a complex story. There are some very deep, very deep themes, very deep thoughts, very deep philosophies. I mean, it, it actually was, that's why it's considered to be one of the best. Yeah. Right. I don't know if, I don't know if I would consider it the best of classic who, but I, it's certainly one of the best. Yeah. So one of the things that comes up for me as a, someone who's new to classic who, uh, is 
Why does Davros look so different from everyone else? What's with his weird look? I mean, I, yeah. I could get maybe he's handicapped and in a mm-hmm. chair. The third eye, the weird uh, dis- deformities of his face, it is his body. Is he well, just, this, you know, this one, they, you know, at least when in this makeup, they make you it looks clear that the third eye is like an attachment. Yeah. Where you can see the, the wires, the wires, of course, that they use to flash the light. But um, you can see the wires coming down onto the, the head. You know, so that it's clear that it's something like a sen- an extra sensor or something like that he has added to his setup. Yeah, I they don't really explain why Davros is like this. They may in some of the big finish stuff because they actually have a series devoted entirely to Davros. Hmm. Um, but um, but um, I would suppose he's got some kind of degenerative disease and or has experienced some kind of, you know, industrial scientific accident yeah, that's, see, that's left him disfigured and needing the chair and the eye and stuff like that. See, that's, you know, kind of like in, in I guess you can call it my head canon, um, that he was, you know, either affected by the war because, of course, you know, we saw him in the 12th, 12th doctor. He looked like a normal human child. Right. Um. But then he's, you know, we see him later and he's, he's disfigured and he's, he can't walk on his own and all that, that either can he barely affect- open his eyes. Yeah. Can, can either, um, either was affected by the war was, you know, some kind of missile attack or something like that. Or like you said, some kind of, you know, involved in scientific research and the lab blew up or something like that. And this is his first appearance in Doctor Who, right? This, this. Yes. Is, okay. So we haven't seen him before. They don't have, they haven't had a previous encounter. No, um, they, although the idea that the Daleks were created by a scientist is something that had been previously dealt with in Doctor Who in the comics, um, mm. which were running alongside the TV series from very early days, um, there was an adventure set on Scaro where the Daleks were said to have been created by a scientist named Yarvelin, if I recall correctly. Um, and I, I, I don't recall, you can actually, if you go to, uh, the TARDIS data core online at, uh, t- at TARDIS.wikia.com and look up Genesis of the Daleks, they have a link to where you can view those original newspaper strips online. Hmm. And oh, cool. I guess in your own headcanon, you could, uh, if you look up Genesis for the Dalek, Genesis of the Daleks, it's there in that article. Um, and, and, uh, you can, uh, look that up. And I guess in your head canon, you could say that no matter what he looks like, Yarvelin was an earlier version of Davros and mm-hmm. maybe his name is Yarvelin Davros or Davros Yarvelin or something like that. Yep. Okay. Okay. So, um, and we, and of course Davros, he only shows up one more time in the, t- in the time of, uh, the fourth doctor. Um, but we, but he will show up uh, several times uh, in classic Who, and then we, of course, we see him again several times in uh, New Who, uh, and most right. recently in, as I mentioned, the Twelfth Doctor story, The Magician's Apprentice, and which mm-hmm. is familiar, uh, two parter. Um. So, kind of wrapping things up a little bit, maybe. Um, the doc, uh, I'm sorry, Davros, he, he loses control of his creation. They take control of him. They, uh, classic mad scientist ending. Right. Uh, and in fact, uh, we, you know, we get this, 
idea that they kill him. They kind of, you know, imply that that uh, that he dies at the end. But but of course, we know he doesn't. Uh, He survives somehow, like like so many of the doctor's enemies who die, quote unquote, uh, and don't (laughs) the master being the the, the best of those. Um, So. And then we we kind of end there. Well, yeah, and the Dalek, so the Thals have managed to uh, set up explosives that imprison the Daleks, and apparently they're going to be imprisoned for some time. Like I, I think they so said like a say thousand like years, a thousand or... years, which is a ridiculously long excavation project to get out of a bunker. <laughs> but um, well, when but, all you have is a little sucker hand. I mean, it takes a long well, time to dig okay. that out. <laughs> <laughs> you also have blaster guns, um, but. Uh, the, so, so we have actually had an alteration in the timeline of the Daleks, which the, the doctor points out. He didn't cause it, um, at least not intentionally directly. So he hasn't taken that personal responsibility, but he conjectures that that thousand year gap or whatever is going to, uh, have a positive impact on the future. And he, we end with he and, and, Sarah and Harry all hanging on to the time ring, spiraling through what looks like outer space and having a kind of philosophical conversation about how no matter what happens, there's going to be good that comes out of all of this. And it's an optimistic um, theodicy, to use the philosophical term for it, explanation for the problem of evil. Um, and it actually, it, even though this is not in a Christian context, it fits in with the Christian view that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And, mm-hmm. and, and so we have that similar kind of positive, optimistic view of how good can come even out of evil in the long run. Which is not the same thing as, um, the ends justifying the means doing evil in order Correct. to created right. good that's that's a, a, fa- a moral fallacy i guess is we can mm-hmm. say um but it's that when evil things happen um we can make the make the best of a bad situation that a good things can happen despite evil um right and but, and and may it will happen from a christian point of view despite evil no matter what right mm-hmm. right god is always uh um victorious uh, so <clears throat> Given the doctor's foreknowledge, though, if you're, I'm just kind of looking for your opinions on this. <clears throat> Does that still fly? Does you know what should the doctor have done? If, and I want your opinions. Uh, apart from it being a good story, from a moral standpoint, what should the doctor have done? Should he have destroyed the Daleks, or was he right in doing what he did? What, what do you think, uh, Father Corey? You're the Catholic priest here, so I'll ask you first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, I mean. <sighs> Yeah, you put me on the spot. First. I did. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I think there really are arguments either way. Of course, this is, you know, the classic if you could you know, we touched on it, you know, if you could go back to turn of the century, 1900 Austria and you meet a young Adolf Hitler, would you be justified in killing him knowing what he does as an adult? No, it's kind of exactly um, there's, you know, I, I, I think. This, this is one episode where I think they really do kind of play the moral quandary so well. And that is why that conversation between yep. the doctor and Sarah is so iconic is because, you know, Sarah's in there saying, you know, the ends do justify the means. 
the end being wiping out the Daleks and the doctors and they're saying, but do I have the right? Do I have the right to be judge, jury and executioner of this? These at the time, innocent beings, although knowing who they become, you know, defenseless pre Daleks, I guess you could call them. Um, and, you know, like Jimmy said, you know, the idea of going back and pre killing someone before they can cause you know, the, the, the harm and the deaths that they do is morally wrong. You know, okay. so, and I, it's, I think that is, that is a good argument that this episode really does make. Is it, and I, I think the kind of the irony, of course, that it ends up being a Dalek that blows up the other Daleks, you know, cause he, right. he rolls over the two exposed wires and boom. So, uh, so Jimmy, anything to add to that or. Yeah. You can't kill an innocent in view of, of what he, might may do in the future or even what you know he will do in the future you have to wait until he's an active threat um having said that the doctor might have been able to intervene in other ways like undoing davros's uh deconsciencing of the mm-hmm. daleks that would assuming you know time travel is possible and changing the future is possible and so forth um the the trouble is with the human level of knowledge we can't do either of those things and don't have the wisdom at this point <laughs> anyway but if, assuming you can travel in time and can change the future and you know as much as the doctor does some kind of alteration of the future just adapting dealing with the circumstances you're in makes sense but not the not the deliberate killing of innocence okay well it's an interesting philosophical question in 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 fact you could defend it strikes me you could defend uh putting consciences back into the embryonic daleks as um gene therapy to correct the uh the mutilation of them that davros had inflicted on them Interesting. Well, which would be almost like uh, uh, correcting uh, a, a, an ailment, a mental illness in, you know, a, a in a psychotic person, you know, correcting mm-hmm. that exactly. lack of uh, or sociopathic. Um, so fascinating. I mean, is there anything else we want to add to this or we're, we're about, uh, you know, at the end of our time that we've set aside for discussing uh, any other bits that we haven't uh, finished? I had just a tiny little thing in my notes. I love a description that the Time Lord gives when he talks to the Doctor at the beginning of the first episode where he he makes a reference to when the universe was less than half its present size. And I love that as just rather than its present age, because when you're a Time Lord, time is a little different. And using size as a benchmarker rather than age. I just thought that was really neat. Because of exactly. the uh, theory of the expanding universe, uh, the Correct. universe expands yeah. with time. Very good. Uh, if the, anything else, uh, Father Corey, anything you wanted? Uh, so, nope. um, so that's it from us then. What did you think of this uh, fourth Doctor story, the Genesis of the Daleks, uh, the, how the Doctor dealt with his moral quandary? Do you agree with our take on what the Doctor did, should have done? Did you... Did you like, are you a Dalek fan? Is the Daleks one of your favorite enemies? Uh, what do you think? So what did you think of this? Uh, yeah, you can uh, certainly you can get this on BritBox. That's how I watched it. You can get a free mm-hmm. trial from BritBox if you like. It's six bucks a month. Um, well worth it if you watch any amount of British TV. Uh, so I would uh, suggest that there'll be a link in our show notes. Uh, so to visit us at sqpn.com or go to the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Uh, leave us some feedback there or send us an email to Doctor Who at 
sqpn.com. Uh, we, we haven't had feedback in a bit. We love to get your feedback and to discuss it on air. We love to hear what fans think of, of the shows and what we have to say about it. This is a conversation. Um, you can also find links to all our personal social media and our websites on our show notes at sqpn.com. Uh, we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the ninth Doctor story, Boomtown, which will wrap up our discussion of the ninth Doctor. Uh, and also keep an eye out for Secrets of uh, Star Trek Discovery Part 2 as we discuss uh, the uh, second half of the first season of the new Star Trek Discovery series. That'll be also coming out around the same time as this episode, so keep an eye on SQPN for that. Um, until then... Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining us in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Father Corey, thank you as well. Glad to be here. Uh, once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening, and remember, although the Daleks will create havoc and destruction for millions of years, I know also that out of their evil must come something good. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those... 